Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, a podcast by the Public Transport Association Australia, New Zealand. Each episode, we interview a top female executive from the public transport sector in Australia, New Zealand and around the world. If you're interested in leadership, workplace gender equality or building clean, green transport for the future, this is the podcast for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next episode of Women Who Move Nations. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis. I'm the Executive Director for Future Mobility at the Department of Transport and Planning, and I'm so delighted and really excited today to be interviewing our special guest, Natalie Rita, who's the Deputy Secretary of Strategy and Precincts at the Department of Transport and Planning and is also the Deputy Secretary that I report into in the group in the department. Natalie, welcome. Thanks, Michelle. Lovely to be here. So let's get started into the questions. And I think what I'm really excited to talk to you about today is your role in Korea and your thoughts about transport, but also to hear more about your journey. Um, I think that you're in really what I see to be a trailblazing role in Australia. You're at the nexus of transport and planning and how we develop our precincts for the future for transport to be at the heart of it. So I'd love to hear a bit more about the role and your key priorities over the next few years at the Department of Transport and Planning? Yeah, it's a very evolving space. I think, you know, transport and planning coming together in December last year, it's been a huge 12 months of really working out how the the planning function and the transport function can operate together. And, you know, 12 months hence, it feels like they are so closely entwined that it's hard to to differentiate between the two. And uh, in talking to a lot of people uh, who are either in transport or planning roles, they're usually pretty excited to hear that it can work and that we can move to a place where for every matter that we consider, we're thinking about the broader implications transport planning but also the the broader objective which is often around you know health, healthy vibrant connected sustainable communities and that's the benefit of of having this level or i guess elevated thinking from the perspective that everything's got a strategic consideration first and then drilling down into what that might mean at the more micro or operational level subsequently it is a, um, a role that is a gift and our opportunity and challenge is to make the most of it so that others can can see what the possibilities are. I love that thought that the role is, is a gift. It's a really great way to see that. You've just referred to possibilities and that really leads well into my next question. So this is a podcast for the Public Transport Association in Australia and New Zealand. And so, of course, I want to ask you about public transport. And I think the next question I have is a bit of a tricky one, but I wanted to ask, what do you see as the big opportunities for public transport and mobility in general over the next five years? First and foremost, it's about us having many, many more people live proximate to public transport so that they use it and that they don't have a car, that they don't own a car. Once you own a car, that's an economic decision and it's then an economic barrier to, to choosing public transport unless that public transport is free of charge and or more easy to use than a car, which might include car parking. So 
that's our big push, our big focus is to get as much of the future uh, homes that are going to be delivered in Victoria to be developed proximate to to public transport. And then to complement that, the IT piece with PT, the the real-time information, the the able to, to tap on with your phone, the advanced journey planning that helps people to to pivot if something goes wrong or plans change or or, or systems are out. And and having people using that that journey planning so frequently that they that it's second nature and it's the you know the first choice, not not the last choice. I think they're going to be the pieces that really facilitate a, a game change in the way we move around Victoria. And I'm very specifically saying Victoria, not Melbourne. We need this to be as seamless in regional Victoria as it is in metro areas. And this will help us achieve so many of our state policy objectives. When people take public transport, they generally engage in incidental exercise that makes them bitter. It makes them, it's got positive mental health benefits and it often makes them feel more confident because they're able to to navigate an environment and make decisions and feel successful about that. It also reduces our greenhouse gases and our and improves our environmental credentials. And it often it comes at a lower cost and so improves the affordability and reduces cost of living pressures. That's just before you've even, you know, actually engaged in, you know, the the lovely experience of traveling on public transport versus being in a congested environment. It means that we don't have to have so many car parks, which means that that car parking space can be used for other purposes, be it green open space or or density or intensity of activity around city centres such that they're more vibrant, economically viable and so forth. So it's so important to get this right. It's going to produce fabulous legacy benefits for our society and and the quicker we can make the transition the better it's all music to my ears natalie particularly because i can hear my work program in there uh, where we're very focused on improving customer information which we know can really significantly help mode shift there's a lot in your portfolio and uh, really keen to hear about your career journey now and and how you've ended up in this role as deputy secretary so could you please share with our audience insights into the key milestones and the experience that have really shaped your career trajectory and led you to this world of transport and planning? Yeah, I spent most of my career in private consulting and that was in a whole range of areas. I I started in marketing, advertising, doing promotions, events, morphed into research and then developing strategy from that research. And I, I guess it was that development of strategy and the use of data to inform the strategy, which remains the constant through my career. That led to me becoming involved in economic assessments and economic viability and ultimately into land use planning. And that land use planning then opened me up to that whole world of needing to have integrated planning and I'd never operated in an, an environment where I was only looking at one through one lens. I, w- I was always looking through multiple lenses and and that has 
I guess served me well then to to have a, two roles in local government, essentially as the director of that and strategic land use, but also economic development and so forth. And after undertaking those couple of roles, I guess I learned what I thought the state was doing well and where I thought that there was opportunities for improvement. And ultimately, now that I've been afforded this opportunity to work at the state level, I now have a chance to reach in and see how we can um, make changes that will improve not just our ability to, to work at the state level, but hopefully also help local governments do what they need to do and what they want to do more easily so that they can affect change. And then ultimately try and, and advocate and lobby up at the federal level for changes that, that they can make that is going to, going to affect terrific change. So it's really been a journey and, and a career that is pretty messy, I would have to say. And it sounds, when I describe it like that, that it, there was some strategy and logic to, to the career. There really wasn't. Often there, I was thrown curveballs and things would come out of the blue and you just had to, to pivot. And, and I think, though, if you endeavour to remain true to who you are and your skills, then, you know, you, you can make the best of situations and, and hopefully be able to lean into whatever opportunities or challenges are in front of you and learn from those and then take those learnings forward and, and share those learnings with others and help make not only your career, but the, the career of those around you richer for the, for the experience. I really appreciate you sharing those insights. And I think really leads me to the, this next question that I have, you know, I want to specifically ask you around, I guess, moving up the ladder, so to speak, if that's the kind of term we want to use. You were appointed as a deputy secretary in the Victorian Department of Transport and Planning, I think about two and a half years ago now. And I really wanted to ask you about your experience in how did you approach moving into that larger leadership role? And do you have any lessons that you can share with our audience who might be looking to move into more senior roles? Yeah, I think the most important thing that anyone can do is try and do the job that they're doing to the absolute best of their ability and to get the greatest outcomes, to, to reflect not infrequently on what can I say I actually did? What can I say I actually achieved? And if you're in a role where you feel that you're really not able to say that you have done or achieved very much, you know, be bold and brave and step out from that role or or seek to expand that role from within through either taking on additional responsibilities or having that conversation with the person that you're that you're working with. In terms of taking on this larger role, I was always super excited to be looking after the the policy, the strategy, the the precincts, the the modal planning that came with me taking on that initial deputy secretary role, and particularly the modal piece and bringing all, all of those that modal planning together in an integrated way, and that was as I've consistently said, an absolute game changer for the way we thought about movement. That we looked at every movement challenge in the first instance as a movement challenge and then determined what mode uh, we would apply to achieve that movement challenge. And that is now propelling us forward beautifully 
to integrate the planning for land and the thinking about the possibilities from land and the possibilities for, for delivering. And I guess if I was to give people some some advice in terms of taking on the bigger role, it would be to let the other role go in the first instance because I think sometimes what happens is that people also want to do what they were doing before or they want to over over involve themselves in the, the person that's doing the role that they were doing before and in because it's comfortable and they know it and it's a safe space for them. So by letting letting that go and being very clear about what your role is for the next role, the bigger role, you can really then open yourself up to to what people need from you. And I I said to somebody earlier in the week that I thought that whilst I understood that we need hierarchy for a range of reasons, that by and large, I felt that hierarchy didn't serve us well because people often rely on hierarchy as a, I guess, a proxy for for smarts almost. And that's really unfortunate because right throughout our hierarchy, right throughout our our organisation and every other organisation, every Every piece of that puzzle is is doing a different job, contributing a certain amount to it to an outcome, and they're really in some cases they they're equally important. In other cases, some are some are more important than others. But it's not necessarily the hierarchy that that's providing that direction or, or correlation about what's important. So I think in terms of taking on the senior role, it's being really aware of that 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 to be successful as a, a senior leader, it's we need I need the whole team to be operating at maximum effectiveness and efficiency. And for that to happen, each one of those team members need to feel that they're seen, that they're valued, and that they're getting what they need to do what what their part of the puzzle puzzle is. And that's, you know, definitely easier said than done. And I wouldn't say that that I'm achieving that, but I, it's my constant aspiration. And, and I know that that's what's going to lead us to success. It's fascinating to hear about your leadership approach within that and this concept of the hierarchy and really challenging that. It actually really strikes me. I know that's actually really part of your style. Like if I think a couple of weeks ago, we had all-star forum with your group and, you know, every level was in the room hearing from you and about what the opportunities and challenges are. And something that you spoke about in that forum that I've heard you speak about often actually is this strategic concept around a paradigm shift. And it's it's interesting because my team talk about it. You know, I think it's a really kind of inspiring model to really think about about how we drive change. And I wanted to ask you more about that. Could you explain to the audience the concept of the paradigm shift and, and how do you empower your leaders to manage the change? Yeah, so the, the concept of a paradigm was really popular in sort of the late 80s and early 90s. And essentially, imagine the graph with the, the X and Y axis. And on the, the X axis, you've got time. And on the Y axis, you've got the number of problems that are being solved. And the graph swings from being reasonably flat at the beginning. You're not solving very many problems over time. It swings up and you have a, a significant uplift and you're solving a lot of problems quickly. And then the graph, as you solve um, all of the low-hanging fruit, the graph starts to to ease off and flatten off. 
And the argument is that the the line is reflecting the way you're operating or your culture or the rules for the rules for your for your organization. And the analogy is that the 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 line is also representing the structure that um, the organization is operating within. And that in that first period of setting up the structure, you're all finding your feet, you're working out how things are going to be done, who's doing what, what's the governance, etc. And then as that is refined, there's the upswing, you're solving a lot of problems very quickly. And then that, that, that structure and those rules for operating is likely to start to to ease off and you're not going to solve as many problems. You've you've done what you can under that paradigm, under those rules for operating, and that there's then a need to shift to a new paradigm, either it be a new structure, a new way of operating, new people in those roles, whatever that shift is, that you have a paradigm shift. And, you know, somebody said to me the other day, it's pretty much like that storming, norming, forming, performing. I said, yeah. Absolutely. There's lots of ways of, of describing this. For me, one of the interesting things about this concept of, of a paradigm and a paradigm shift is that it would seem that we're having much more frequent paradigm shifts and increasingly having more frequent paradigm shifts. You know, many years ago when people went to work for an organisation and stayed there for their entire life, they would have likely experienced relatively few paradigm shifts. They probably felt like it was a lot at the time. But I can even recall in organisations that I worked for as recently as sort of 10, 12 years ago, we we started out by saying, look, we're making this change and then we're not going to have another change. Well, no one would say that these days. Everyone knows that, that we're constantly changing, we're constantly evolving. Even the public service that was traditionally quite staid and and some would say stagnant, constant change. We, we're changing our structure in, in the current department every 18 months or so. Now, some would say that's unhelpful because of that flat period at the beginning where you're not solving a lot of problems because everyone's reorganising themselves, people are understanding what their new role is and what their, their mandate is. But what we are seeing quite in, in quite a pronounced fashion, is the terrific upward swing after we do these structural changes. And we at, at the department are currently going through a change. It hasn't even landed. And already we're seeing the upward swing, the increased number of problems that are being solved, which is enormously exciting. And, and Michelle, that's particularly in the area that you're working in and in that digital space and looking at the opportunities. And the opportunities and the cost of solving those problems is is a, is a fraction of using infrastructure to solve our problems. So I really think that that is going to be the next big horizon or it's a, a horizon that we're already operating through and it's so exciting to, to be part of. It is really exciting and I really like that reflection that kind of after big change, you actually see that upswing in achievement and really being able to tackle, you know, complex problems. As you said, there's constant in change, isn't it? It's across all organisations, across public and private. And I wanted to ask in your experience, what's been your reflections around how you overcome resistance to change? Because we know everyone experiences change differently. 
they're on that kind of change curve. And just wanted to ask, how do you kind of foster the culture where we have equity, where we have the ability to kind of manage through the change and bring everyone on that journey? I think it's just communication. And communication, communication, communication. What's really interesting, having led a number of change processes over the years, is it doesn't matter how many times you think you've said something. It's very likely that some of the people you thought you communicated with have either not heard what you said or have not taken away the meaning that you thought you had conveyed. And so by, I guess, being very open to the fact that you are going to need to say these things in many different ways on many different occasions to to many people and to be prepared to to remain patient and open to the fact that people may or may not have heard what you've said or may not have taken away what you thought that they had taken away. Because if people haven't heard or haven't uh, received the message in the way that you thought you you had um, communicated, then they are not going to be well positioned to understand the paradigm under which you're hoping that they will operate. And any loss of that message is going to diminish your effort to achieve those outcomes and solve those problems that you might otherwise have been able to to solve or achieve. And I, I sort of draw the analogy to the people that might have a, a breakup in their marriage. I, and I had friends who, who had, a, had a breakup in their marriage some years ago. And one of the real sticking points for them was that he was saying that the fridge, this particular fridge in their relationship was worth $2,000 and she was saying it was worth $100. And he was telling me how unreasonable she was at valuing it for $100 and she was telling me how unreasonable he was at valuing it for $2,000. And this, this became a real source of anger and frustration and a representation of, of just how unreasonable the other person was. And I realised that they were talking about different fridges. And I often reflect on that example that when you go into your corner, when you batten down and you don't listen or you're not open to to the fact that somebody might have heard this differently or interpreted the message in an alternate way, you really limit your ability to, to be open to, to not just change but the opportunities that come with change. And if we, if we keep communicating, if we keep talking, if we keep being open to the fact that people may or may not have heard or received the message in the way that we intended, then we remain optimistic and about achieving the best we can from the change. And yes, it's, it's going to be hard and not everybody's going to be happy. And, and we're not going to potentially achieve all that we could have, but we're going to have given it our best shot. I really like that example. It actually made me smile because it's applicable to workplace and change, but we got some free marriage advice as well, Natalie, so maybe some of our listeners <laughs> appreciated that too. I think what I find interesting about your career as well is that you've had significant experience as a board director and it's such a great opportunity to contribute skills in a different way. And I wanted to talk to you about your board director position on PTA ANZ. And I also understand you've been heavily involved in other activities. You've chaired the committee for the recent annual conference, which is such a huge success. 
And I wanted to ask what do you enjoy about that director role? And also, do you have any advice for people who'd be looking to start a board career? So the the PTA ANZ board is, is another gift that I have received um, through this role because I get to connect with so many other fabulous people doing wonderful things, both nationally and internationally. And it's amazing how similar the challenges are. And I did another session through my role with some international speakers talking about the return to PT post-COVID. And I was quite blown away at how similar our numbers were, the challenges, the various responses. And it was, it almost felt like a therapy session. And I got significant joy from 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 having that connection and, and having that sense of understanding and the fact that you're you're not alone in, in these challenges and problems. In terms of encouraging others to, to undertake board roles, there are ways of signing up to, to make yourself available for board roles. LinkedIn also often advertises board roles and there are, I, I believe, a number of health roles out at the moment. I was on the board of what was the Ballarat Health Service and we drove through an amalgamation with four health services in the region and, and I was chair of the health service through that, that period. And my key learning from being in the board roles was was just um, how terrific it was to be able to stand in a different um, place and and have a, a different uh, role to my to my standard role and it it gave not just perspective of the the challenges of the executive for a board but also a chance I guess to be empathetic to to those challenges and those executives to to try and give them space to to be the best that they could be. If, you, if you're keen on taking on a board role, there's a lot of not-for-profit roles available, but there's also paid roles out there and boards are always looking for, for diversity, so they're looking for cold diversity, for every aspect of diversity and it's sadly lacking at the moment and I think that one of the main hurdles to people's participation in taking on board roles is that they feel that they don't know how to do it, that they're not good enough. Most boards will provide you an, in, an induction. There's also courses that you can undertake online or, or in real life to, to skill yourself up. But the other thing too is not to put too much pressure on yourself. And the very first board role I ever took on was for a health service up in the Northeast. And it took me 12 months before I was really comfortable to say very much largely because it took me 12 months to understand what the hell anybody was talking about. But once I did, I then really felt empowered to have a view and understood my role. So don't be intimidated. If you're enjoying Women Who Move Nations, make sure you follow us on your favourite podcast platforms and rate the show to help more people find us. Follow the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand to learn more about public transport and to keep up to date with all our events and activities. Our website is ptaanz.org. We're also on LinkedIn. Just search Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. And our Twitter handle is ptaanz underscore. If you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email 
at info at ptaanz.org. Coming back to your participation at PTA ANZ, I think you referred actually to a conversation you had with international peers around the recovery to PT and and talking about it as a therapy session. And I'm assuming you're referring to the American delegation from APTA, who I know visited Melbourne a few months ago. And I just wanted to ask that what are your thoughts around, you know, the benefits of being involved in these kind of industry associations and connecting with both local and international peers, you know, particularly in this space of public transport? Yeah, I think it's the learning and shared understanding is is the key benefit. But it's also the learning that you undergo even when you're explaining what you do to to somebody else. I I lectured for a while and one of my realisations through lecturing was that I learnt a lot just by teaching other people. I did a Bachelor of Arts uh, with a major in psychology, a Bachelor of Business in Marketing and an MBA and I was doing my doctorate at the time and some of the concepts that I had to teach, I I taught um, right from first year through to to master's level and some of the concepts that I taught, I had learnt myself, you know, 15 times, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, Hertzberg's theory of motivation, the P's of marketing, a whole range of things. But every time I taught it, I learned something new about that concept. I thought about it in a different way. I, I applied it to a different a different example or a different concept. And I became richer for that experience. And I think that by being involved in PTAANZ, by talking to other people about what we're doing, how they might do that, listening to how how they're solving challenges, how they are, are operating, how they're structured, then once again, I, I learn more and I work out how we can apply those learnings, either because I've thought about what we're doing in a separate way or I've, I've, applied, I've listened and applied their learnings to, to our environment. I think that is one of, one of the, the key benefits. And, and by being part of PTA ANZ, we're building uh, a relationship. We have people that we can pick up the phone and, and and call about particular matters. We're coming from a place of shared understanding and learning rather than just attending a, a conference that is being run by a third party that doesn't have a foundation of, of that shared relationship or understanding. So, we the opportunity and challenges for us to continue to build on that and to bring more people into that family and to to benefit from from that inclusion that's a great reflection i've actually never thought about that before the benefit you have actually in articulating what you're doing and your experience to others that's great i want to move back now to kind of the reflections around your your career journey and there's a question that i always love to ask because i get such varied and diverse responses and it's really around the challenges you've had in your career. And I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the biggest challenge that you've had in your career? I think the biggest challenges would be on times where I've been sort of thrown on the scrap heap and it's happened more than once. And it's such a feeling of almost desolation that you have felt that you were making a terrific contribution 
and you were trying really hard, potentially in a very difficult situation. And then somebody has determined that you're not required anymore and you are you're sent out into the wilderness. And it happens frequently and it happens to most people at least once, if, if not more. But when it's you, it feels like you're the only one that it hasn't happened to anybody before and that it's worse for you. And it's really hard. It's really hard to get back on the on the horse. But that's exactly what you've got to do. And you've got to get out there and you've got to talk to people and you've got to find a way back in. And I think the feeling of aloneness would be one of the most challenging parts of that, but also that need to motivate yourself about your self-worth and make sure that you're you're feeling uh, and in well well positioning yourself to for that next opportunity to as it comes around the corner and can feel like a long time even though often for people it's not very long in terms of number of you know days weeks months it's but it, it certainly feels like it at the time and I I think that that they they're the times if someone is, as soon as you said that, Michelle, as soon as you asked that question, that was the first thing that sprung to mind. And I, it, it's because I do recall those as being dark times and and being, and even though the sum total of the amount of time I would have spent not, not working full time in the last 25 years would have been about three weeks. <laughs> but yet that was the first thing that sprang to mind. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate your honesty. And the reality is it happens all the time. I mean, I've ended up on the scrap heap before and at the time I found it uh, extremely challenging and then it turns out it can be the best thing that ever happened to you, right, because it leads you to different opportunities. Do you have any reflections, Natalie, around, I guess, any situations you feel that being a female has has been a, a factor or, you know, or that's had an impact or made it, it's made it more difficult for you? I think in some of those roles, and this is some time ago that it was more of a factor. I Not these days. I was actually talking to uh, Paul Eunice, the secretary, the other day about the fact that for me, our workplace doesn't feel gendered at all. I don't – and because I was, I was talking about the fact that I almost struggle a little bit with the, the whole women's thing because I don't I – ne- I don't feel like a woman it, it's sitting in a meeting. I just feel like a person and – you know, that the other people in the room are, are other people. I don't, I'm not general, you know, 99% of the time I'm not sitting there feeling that there's any aspect of gender that is about our our work life. Although I did have a leadership meeting the other week where it was only women <laughs> and that did, I did have a bit of a laugh about that considering the, the fact that tra- transport in particular tends to be more male dominated than, than, than women. But I, I know that that is not true for everybody and I know that some of those early experiences I had, which were in some cases really quite confronting and, and the lack of empathy at the time by, by some men was astounding. I do feel like we've largely moved on, but it, but naturally it can it can be there. I was talking to, to somebody the other day who was saying that there was a grad program at at their work and the male members of the panel 
that were selecting the grads were rating them on their appearance. And, you know, just astounding in 2023 that that would be something that would be going on. So I'm naive to say that everybody is, is um, fortunate, you know, enough to, to be in a non-gendered environment these days. But, you know, anything we can do to just remain alive and alert to uh, stamping that out is going to benefit us as a society and needs to be done. Appreciate you sharing those reflections. And I can only assume that that story you were talking about was completely outside public sector. But it, it is interesting, right? I actually love, though, that that you feel that in your experience of what you're seeing, that gender's not playing a role. And I mean, certainly you have a, a really diverse leadership team. I mean, that's something that really strikes me about working in the area that I do. I wanted to ask you another question and it's around work-life balance and I get such different responses to this question and I had a really good chat with Sally Stannard about it some months ago when I interviewed her on the podcast. Do you think it's a myth or have you managed to balance, I guess, your personal and professional growth, you know, with your responsibilities, you know, kind of collectively both at work and at home? So I was so intrigued by this topic of work-life balance that I wrote an academic paper about it back in, oh, wow. yeah, about 15 or 16 years ago that was published internationally and it was called, I can't remember what it was called, there you go, this is how much I've moved on, Michelle, but it was talking about the definition of work-life balance and what I started out by doing was looking at all the various definitions of work-life balance and there are many and I was most pumped at the time about the fact that some people were trying to define work-life balance as equal time spent at work and home and play, a bit like the 888 concept. And I just thought it was completely ridiculous and that it really belied the fact that various people have got various priorities in life. And, And how can someone say that an equal amount of time either means equal quality or even if that's going to to meet your level of satisfaction in terms of what what you aspire to do. So I I was very focused on debunking that myth in the first instance. And I spent about 18 months on this and, and roved into not just looking at these definitions in terms of saying one was more appropriate than the other, but I categorised the definitions, and hold on to your hat, I categorised it according to a taxonomy of ethical ideologies. And I determined that some of the definitions were appropriate for a very rules-based way of thinking, that if you apply, if you live according to these rules, then you will have a, a more idealistic life versus a situational type perspective where the, the definition of balance needed to be situational to, to you and your priorities and, and the factors going on in your life. And uh, I determined that or, or posited that a, a situational perspective was a, a more appropriate way to define work-life balance. And, and then went, the paper then went on to consider ways that you could measure balance with the view that if organisational 
development bods thought about developing work-life policies and, and programs in light of a situational perspective, then they would be more open to consider a whole range of programs that weren't just about less work or flexible work or work from home, but might might embrace much more diverse offerings, particularly around people who might be, you know, caring for family members or or indeed wanting to work a huge number of hours and could the organization you know pay for the cleaner or or or, or, or a somebody to drive drive you around or whatever's going to going to make that work life balance work for you i think i've been i've been really lucky that i've been able to shift and change the way i've worked to to meet the the needs of home and and my personal aspirations for work over over the years for example when the girls were at at school I would I would walk them up we live in town I would walk them up to the tram stop in Collins Street at about quarter past seven they'd jump on the tram and go to go into to Baldwin to school and I and I'd walk down to to work in Carlton and then leave work a bit earlier at the end of the day in lieu of the fact that I'd got there early and 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 they in the, returning to school via the tram hadn't been at home too long by the time I got there so and then you know being able to do bits and bobs at at, at home for me work life balance is that I work really really hard from about quarter past 8 till about half past 5 6 o'clock and then that's it for me I I'm not one of these people that jumps back on you know, late at night. But for some people, that's that's what works for them and that's what they do. So I think it really is about thinking about really what work-life balance means to you and how you can achieve that by either modifying the way you work or talking with your work colleagues about how you can get uh, achieve that balance that is going to, to work for both yourself and the organisation. I really appreciate you sharing that, Natalie. And I had no idea you wrote a, a PhD in work-life balance so or a paper, did you say? But yeah, fascinating stuff. I have a couple of more questions I wanted to ask you. And one of them is around how you plan your career. And earlier in the podcast conversation, I heard you describe your career as a messy career. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I wanted to ask you, you know, are you I mean, you're a planner by trade, but do you plan your career? Like, do you have a five-year plan? No, I don't, and I should. Nobody take this advice. Yeah, um, no, I should. And I'm not even – for somebody who thinks strategically about how to achieve terrific outcomes for cities, I don't even think strategically about my diary. So these are things that I should do, and I, I won't get – you should also all read Brene Brown on not not shooting. Brene Brown talked about shooting, and we shouldn't we shouldn't should we should indeed just just do. But I think that planning one's career perhaps should be done under a range of scenarios. Do some scenario and considerations, and that if under a particular scenario, which might be staying where you are in the role you are, what do you want to achieve? Staying where you are, but achieving or acquiring a different role versus perhaps moving to a different organisation or, or perhaps doing something entirely different. I think it's interesting. I I was talking to one of my daughters last night about 
whole range of scenarios. And I said to her, you are never going to be better positioned to do whatever you want. You don't have a mortgage. I said, you don't even have a, a car. You don't have any any real constraints. What's constraining you is yourself. The world's your oyster right now. Go, go take it. That is not true of everybody. Some people have got mortgages. And so it's not appropriate to say, oh, you, you know, go and try something new. There might be very real reasons why that doesn't, doesn't work for you at that point in time. And one needs to, to, to accept those limitations in that case or, or rid yourself of those limitations to, to open yourself up to something new. So whilst I haven't been strategic in, in my career, I would encourage others to perhaps be a bit more thoughtful and to, to, to map out some scenarios. But you're also aware that if if that scenario doesn't work out for you, you've got other options. I I once gave somebody career advice and this girl had – I said to her, what do you want to do? What do you really want to do? If you could just set everything aside, what would you want to do? And she said, I would want to promote Bollywood films. And I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, Wow. I said to her, I said, if you if you wanted to pursue this dream, I said, what are your constraints? I said, if, if, do you really need money or could you could you manage with a small sort of income or, or no income while you chase down this dream? And she said, I, yeah, for a while. I said, okay, why don't you why don't you give yourself an amount of time to to achieve this dream? I said, whatever that is, six months, twelve months, give yourself a a period of time, and then map out some steps of what you're going to do over that period of time to try and achieve this dream. What would you need to do? I said, so you'd throw out a traditional CV. That's not going to that's not going to get you the job. You, you know, you'd need to become involved in. And this girl wasn't had no cultural ties to, to Bollywood. I'll I'll put it like that. I said you'd, you'll need to embed yourself in that community. You'll need to talk to to, to people who who do this kind of stuff. And one of the, the constraints that she'd identified in our chat was that her parents were very concerned about her. Her parents were saying, you really need to knuckle down, you know, and go on the traditional trajectory. I said, what you need to do is you need to talk to your parents about the fact that you've given yourself this period of time to chase down this dream and that if you don't succeed after that period of time, you've, you're going to do these other things. And I said, just map out a sort of a B and a C. If you don't succeed in A, you'll do X, and if you don't succeed in that, you'll do you'll you'll go with scenario C. So she she went off. I'd never met her before. I'd just been asked to talk with her. She went off on her merry way, and lo and behold, about six or eight months later, she sent me an email and she said, "You may not recall our conversation. We only met the once, but I got a job managing and promoting Bollywood films." <laughs> I laughed, sat at my desk laughing, and then I thought to myself, Natalie, you are an idiot. You have given this person this advice and you haven't done it yourself. <laughs> Get on and do do what you want to do. And I did. And I and I got the next job and I, I was on a on a better path. So there you go. Oh, I love that advice. 
I mean, actually, when you said that, what do you really want to do? I thought, I really want to write a rom-com novel and sell the rights to Netflix and and live off that forever. But alas, I have a mortgage, right? So it's actually really practical advice that you shared. I have one more question and perhaps I know we've only got probably a couple of minutes left. So if you could just give, I guess, one piece of advice and you've already offered so much generously, you know, in this interview, but what would be your one piece of advice for young professionals who are moving through their career? To do what you do well. And and I mean really well. It's sometimes the case whereby somebody feels that what they're doing is not very important and if they feel that it's not very important they often perhaps don't put them their full selves into it and by by having the the opposite view and by seeing what you do as important and making it important it becomes important and you can make the most of it i through my career have been asked to do some very strange things and by by making the most of those things it's always served me well perhaps I have put more effort into it than I was rewarded for but I had the learning I took the 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 positive away I I've, I've said more than once to staff members don't worry about that annoying person. You're not even going to remember that annoying person in five years' time. Don't waste your energy on that annoying person. Put yourself in the in the centre of doing good things and good things will come. So, you know, life is got it's a bumpy road. It's it it will come with highs and lows regardless of, of either efforts or disposition or or anything else. But if you can just try and make the most of every experience that I think is going to set you up for the best chance of success and 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 success not just for yourself but but for all. It's so well said, Natalie. It's been completely inspiring to interview you and to really hear your reflections and your advice and how passionate you are. I mean, something that really stood out to me is how you perceive your job to be a gift. And that really resonated with me as well, because even though I joke about the rom-com writing life, it's a real honor to work in this industry, isn't it? So thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women Who Move Nations. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis. It's been a delight to interview Natalie Reader, who is the Deputy Secretary of the Victorian Department of Transport and Planning and also a Board Director at PTA ANZ. Look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler and Sophia Dickinson for the Public Transport Association Australia, New Zealand. To find out more, please visit our website, ptaanz.org. Tune in for more soon.